1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East European Studies. I'm Marina, one of the hosts in this channel. Today, I will be talking to Dr. Gediminas Lankauskas about his book, The Land of Weddings and Rain Nation and Modernity in Post Socialist Lithuania. Dr. Lankauskas, welcome to our show. I was wondering if you could begin this interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Uh, Yeah, sure. Hello. Um, And thank you so much for uh, inviting me to the show. Um, so, um,
1: Thank you for being with us today. It is a great pleasure.
0: Yeah, you here. <laughs> so I'm Gediminas Lenkowskis. Uh, the people in Canada call me Geddes. Um, I was born and raised in um, socialist Lithuania in the heyday of the Cold War. Um, I studied English and linguistics at Vilnius University. Uh, and in the early 1990s, just when the Soviet Empire was crumbling, I moved to Canada. And um, that's when I discovered anthropology. Um, Let me tell you briefly how that happened. Um, At the time, I met a couple of um, Canadian anthropology professors who introduced me to the discipline about which I knew virtually nothing. And uh, they told me that anthropology was not just a social science discipline, uh, but a way of seeing the world. Um, they, They also added that. When one learns how to look at the world anthropologically, there's uh, really no going back. Uh, That couldn't be unlearned. Um, So that intriguing introduction to anthropology as a way of uh, seeing and being uh, in a kind of existential sense um, motivated me to learn more about it. Uh, and since, since that conversation, which uh, took place almost 30 years ago, uh, hard to believe, um, I have learned a great deal about anthropology as a graduate student at uh, Trent University in Ontario and then at the University of Toronto, where I earned my doctoral degree and became a certified anthropologist. Um, I'm still interested in literature and languages, uh, which were so central to uh, my early university education. Um, I also have a great deal of respect for history. Um, I firmly believe that the present is unknowable without the knowledge of the past. Um, But anthropology, by far, is my favorite. And over the years, it has uh, challenged, enlightened, frustrated angered me uh, but uh, has never disappointed me and uh, as i see it and love yeah
1: i find some sim- yeah go ahead oh i find some similarities between our parts my previous degree is also not in anthropology but yeah sorry i interrupted you
0: yeah so uh, yeah well, i guess but, but both of us are migrants from from other disciplines and and i assume we, both of us are quite happy to be in anthropology so uh yeah um just a few more words uh, about um about anthropology um as i see it um unlike any other uh, discipline in the uh in the in the humanities and and social sciences anthropology gives one uh so much uh how shall i put it Intellectual space and, and freedom to explore the world, and through that exploration, uh, to get to know oneself better. Um, so that's that's the beauty of, of anthropology, as I see it. Uh, it's it's certainly a very demanding discipline, yet it's uh, also tremendously um, rewarding. Um, and these are some of the things I tell my students uh, when I introduce them to anthropology. And uh, I'm currently an associate professor at uh, uh, the University of Regina in Canada.
1: I'm sure that as you're coming from another discipline, when you tell your students about how you discovered anthropology, they are intrigued. So let's talk about your book, The Land of Weddings and Rain, Nation and Modernity in Post-Socialist Lithuania. It was published in 2015 by the University of Toronto Press. Um, I had the pleasure to read it some time ago, as it happens to fit quite well with my own current research about wedding in Kosovo. So I am excited to be talking with you about it today. Um, In the Postscriptum, you call your book an ethnography of modernity in contemporary Eastern Europe. Um, So could you tell us more about the concept? of multiple modernities and the opposition modernity tradition, and how do you apply these concepts in the context of post-socialist Lithuania?
0: Oh, modernity. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, let me begin by saying that um, modernity as a concept enjoys enormous popularity and uh, wide circulation in the social sciences today. Um, yet it's a it's a concept that is often left uninterrogated, uninter- uh, unqualified, and is simply seen as self-explanatory. Uh, because it has so many references and meanings, modernity runs the risk of becoming a meaningless and lifeless concept, um, unless we ground it ethnographically in very concrete social and cultural contexts, such as post-socialist change in Eastern Europe. Um, and, uh, and this is what I attempted to do uh, with the slippery concept of modernity in my book on urban weddings in Lithuania. Um, modernity becomes conceptually compelling and interesting when we pay close ethnographic attention to the ways in which it is embedded in social life as, quote unquote, modern ideas, ideals, values. Um, images, objects, or practices. Uh, Simply put, modernity becomes analytically helpful when we ask what it looks like, where it is located, what it feels like. Um, In other words, when we inquire into what people of flesh and blood make of it and how they respond to it in their daily social lives. Uh, Also, ethnographic study of modernity allows us to complicate and critique theoretical perspectives, which tend to see modernizing change as a smooth, uh, unilinear uh, transition to a new and, quote-unquote, more advanced social order. Ethnographic research shows, and that certainly has been confirmed by my fieldwork, that the pursuit of modernity does not necessarily result in desired modernization. Rather, this pursuit often produces all kinds of unintended consequences, uh, disillusionment uh, or disenchantment, and ambiguity. Um, It was never my intent, I should uh, point out, uh, to make modernity as um, one of the organizing concepts of my book, uh, but I couldn't possibly escape it. Uh, early on in my research, I realized how central the idea of modernity in its many manifestations was to many of the people I talked to during my fieldwork in Lithuania in the late 1990s. Um, it, soon, it soon became apparent that for many of my respondents, modernity provided an important reference point um, in their effort to understand, assess, and importantly, to critique the ongoing post-socialist change. Uh, that change, which was so unsettling, disorienting, and at once very exciting and promising, was about leaving socialist modernity behind and embracing uh, Western, uh, the Western-style modernity. Uh, in other words, about becoming modern, modern European, civilized, normal uh, as well, Um, to use uh, the words of my respondents. Now, in Lithuania, as elsewhere in Eastern Europe, after the demise of socialism, the pursuit of the modern West, uh, and I use the modern West in quotations, uh, in quotations, of course, um, that pursuit was, and I would say still is, um, unfolding not so much as a process of distancing from a traditional social order, but as a process of leaving another "quote unquote" failed modernity behind, and this is where things become a bit more interesting, as I see it, we can think about modernity not just in contrast to so-called tradition, as um, as classical social theory would have it, but also in relation to other kinds of modernity. We can start thinking about modernity as a as a As a self referential category, as it were, one that defines itself in relation to um, various guises or manifestations of itself. Um, The the process of socialist modernization or westernization in Lithuania was and still is uh, not only about negating and erasing socialism but also about invoking the interwar period of repolitical independence between 1918 and 1939, uh, which is often remembered as a kind of progressive modern era to be celebrated um, and uh, emulated today. Now, as we study these multiple modernities in conversation with each other, and I think that's an interesting and worthwhile thing to do, but but we cannot, as we do that, we cannot, of course, lose sight of what is known as um, tradition. And as I showed in, in, in my book, in Lithuania, the desire to be modern is articulated in relation to a wide variety of cultural forms seem to be representative of national um, tradition. Uh, just to be more specific, Forms such as folklore, handicrafts, and national cuisine, um, uh, rite of passage, uh, passage customs, and and even adherence to Catholicism, Lithuania's national religion, uh, which can also be thought of as a kind of tradition. So, as people strive to modernize uh, their lives and, uh, uh, and and to refashion themselves as quote-unquote, modern persons, they wonder what will become of what they refer to as our traditions, which are intimately tied to national self-conception and to what my respondents often refer to um, as Lietuvibe or Lithuanianess. Uh, There was always a perceived risk of damaging and even losing tradition and its associated national identity in the pursuit uh, of the modern. So ideas and ideals of of nationhood were, and continue to be, um, sort of key modalities through which Lithuanians apprehend, negotiate, and contest the unfolding modernizing changes as they simultaneously assert their national uh, selves and allegiances. Um, so yes, we can look at how uh, different modernities talk to one another, and that's very interesting, but we shouldn't lose sight of tradition because it's also a very important point of reference in that broader national uh, narrative that that we see today in Lithuania, and that's probably true of other parts um, in in Eastern Europe so
1: Yes, that's really interesting, especially the part about modernity not being one modernity, but especially in the case of Lithuania, having like a second promise for modernity, the first one, the socialist one, having failed in the uh, in the eyes of people there. So, yes, thank you for telling us about your understanding of modernity and tradition and how they interact. What really drew my attention, though, to your book was one method, I would say, that you are using – and this is the ethnographic collage. Uh, this means that Vida and Vigantis... Uh, so please, is Vigantis pronounced like this? Or how should this name be pronounced? Um, yeah. Okay, so their story is a blend of several couples' wedding experiences. While they are real experiences, they did not happen to the same couple. So could you tell us more about this approach and what are some of its benefits and difficulties?
0: Um right, sure. Uh, uh, well, Vida and Vigantas, who are the principal dramatis personae of my ethnography. Uh, they're sort of the main characters, if you will, of it, are, are real people. They do exist. They're not not fictitious. I didn't invent them. They, they do live in in Lithuania. <laughs> now their names, uh, however, are pseudonyms. Uh, Now, I describe and analyze the wedding as representative of uh, urban middle-class marriage celebrations in 1990s uh, Lithuania. Now, incorporated into this description and analysis are ethnographic examples from other weddings that I observed during my fieldwork. So that's what makes it uh, an ethnographic collage or pastiche, we could say. Now there are there are there are three reasons I would say behind this writing strategy. First um, is to provide a richer, more comprehensive representation of ways in which the post-socialist urban wedding is constituted and uh, celebrated. Uh, The second reason would be uh, to make the narrative more focused and coherent for the benefit of the reader. And finally, the strategy helped me as a writer to stay more centered and uh, grounded ethnographically. Um, Had I chosen to describe each and every wedding I observed, and there were probably around 20 of them, um that I I watched observed um or or watched on, on video or just sort of uh, observed uh, unfolding in you know, real real space and time. Uh so had I described all of these weddings I would have ended up with uh a very fragmented and potentially uh disorienting text, I imagine. Uh, So the difficulty with the technique of a textual collage uh, was in um, deciding which elements from other weddings to incorporate into Vida and marriage celebration and then how to weave those elements into it as seamlessly as possible. Uh, So that was sort of the more challenging part. Um, But as sort of as a technique, as a collage as a pastiche, I think it it uh, it it would work, worked well uh, because uh, and frankly i did i cannot imagine who else I could have uh, described those weddings as I said, if I described them individually, that would have taken me forever and and would have created a lot of um sort of uh, fragmented text so so that's that's the ethnographic collage,
1: yeah. Uh, I really find this um, fascinating and kind of like use this in my own work. Um, I, I'm i not sure I would also call it ethnographic collage, but in our, in our, um, like people are two real people first and, and everything that you have described, you have actually seen. Whereas with my case, um, the people are made up and the things I have described, they are uh, real, part of them I have seen, but some of them are just probable. Like like I I read their conversations. Like, let's not take too much time with my with my research, but I really find interesting how um, you are still kind of like good to the story, but you make it easier for your uh, readers to comprehend what is happening there. I, I really think that's the best that you could do with this data and maybe this is actually my uh, message. I don't know, maybe there are many other uh contexts when this could be used, but it seems really appropriate in a rite of passage context, when, you, when you're looking to many people's stories and comparing, and you want to give the impression of um, one rite of passage happening in different stages. Um, so yes, so it was you that kind of like inspired me to do something similar. So really, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, so also, I was wondering about um, you call your work, Chronotopic project. Um, could you tell us more about your reader? Oh, sorry, uh, your reading of the concept of canotop.
0: Right. Um, well, let me begin by um, saying as uh, that um, one of the most salient features of the uh, the pursuit of Western modernity in Lithuania. Uh, and again, I'm I'm pretty sure that that could be said of other parts of uh, Eastern Europe. So one of the you know, salient features of that process is a radical reconfiguration of space and time. Um, I therefore find it helpful to think about this process in uh, chronotopic terms, and I borrow the concept of of chronotope or space-time, that's what it really means, uh, from the work of uh, Russian literary theorist and philosopher Mikhail Bakhtin, um, who taught us, Bakhtin told us that um, time and space and social life are inextricably interconnected, and uh, one cannot be understood without the other. And that's something that, surprisingly, we oftentimes forget. Uh, We sometimes write about social space and overlook the fact that it exists in and is shaped by time. Or we examine social time and its associated temporalities, which is the past, present, future, neglecting to give uh, due attention to its uh, twin category of space. So... It makes good sense to think of the ongoing changes in Lithuania today uh, in chronotopic terms, because again, so many of those changes implicate space and time. Um, Rewriting national history, resetting clocks to align the nation's time with Western Europe, uh, changing the national holidays. Or even attempts to envision what the future will bring are some of the examples of social engagement with time. Now, much of this temporal endeavor to reposition Lithuania in time, or retime it, if you will, if you want to use that kind of word, involves space. In other words, retiming is is about space. Okay, hey, well, let's uh talk about space a little bit more. Uh, How is that uh, space being reconfigured? Examples: redrawing maps, redesigning city squares, renaming streets, toppling statues commemorating persons associated with the Soviet past. Um, Some of the examples of I call respacing of the nation, and uh, once again a process that is closely interlinked with. It's retiming. So respacing goes goes hand in hand um, with with retiming. Just to paraphrase Bakhtin uh, quickly here, uh, space, he said, responds, I'm not quoting, just paraphrasing, space responds to the movement of time or historical change. Um, The chronotope is also analytically compelling because it is so intimately tied to human agency in other words, to what people do. Um, and another nice thing about chronotope is that we can effectively use it as a category to think about broader processes of social change or about, and about, I should say, and about cultural phenomena on a much smaller scale. Um, it is a handy con- it, it, it's a handy concept with, with which to study weddings for instance, social occasions that mediate among many spaces, um many temporal reference, and many social actors. Uh and of course that's something I I discuss at length um in my book. So so the chronotope is is a is a very very helpful um uh, heuristic kind of category with which to think about social life in general, whatever, whatever social life we're interested in. Um, I think, you know, all people everywhere, they exist in space and time. And our job is to understand um, how they, uh, how they engage with those, with those categories of, of time and space. Uh, we, We need to learn how they're, Chronotope works, uh, works or many chronotopes really. So so anyway, uh, the, the, the chronotope is 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 very, very helpful. It certainly helped me in the book. Uh it helped me to think about the material in the book and, and now in, in my other projects. Um, again, the, the chronotope is very, very present and again very helpful. So so Bachtin lives on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, um, this, my next question is actually kind of like related because um, it is about embodied and sensory experiences um, and you reiterate their role uh, when approaching a space and um, yeah, I mean like we do live in the space, we do save a space to our senses. So um, how do you link this phenomenological framework of embodied experiences with the concept of time-space?
0: Okay, Um, so the chronotope and, uh, well, spaces and their associated temporal parameters. Like all spaces are somehow in-timed or they are in time. Uh, So they have temporal parameters. Spaces with those parameters become socially and culturally significant when they are animated or activated by the human body. When we talk about the human body, we of course talk about the senses. Now, an empty space is socially meaningless. Space becomes meaningful when social actors engage with it, through their bodies, and by extension, through their senses. When they see a space, when they smell it, when they hear it, when, I, when they touch it, um, in other words, when they uh, consciously experience it, experience the space, with its temporal parameters, in a phenomenological way. Um, As a phenomenon, a space acquires significance when it is embodied. For instance, through ritualized action, through ritual, such as the wedding. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, when. mm -hmm.
1: So, can you tell us more about how you connect the wedding with the chronotope? why uh, right. you choose to concentrate on embodied and sensory experiences right
0: yeah, yeah. So I'll, like I'll, let, I'll, let's I'll integrate sort
1: of... the wedding in all this because our listeners right. might might right. be, so might be was... wondering where, where 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 is this wedding that we were promised about?
0: <laughs> right okay well the, the wedding is coming up in a moment <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um so um so where were we uh Right, well, a space it becomes meaningful, significant when it is embodied, and and one way of embodying a space is once again through uh, through ritual, and and the wedding is sort of uh, is a good ritual with which to um, achieve that uh, or to strive for that embodiment. Um, now, when okay, let give let, let me give you sort of more concrete, um, I guess, examples. Um, when people are physically present in a space, and that could be during a wedding. Um, And and again, I'll give you more examples later on. Uh, So when people are present in a a particular space, uh, their senses uh, bring up, um, their senses trigger emotional responses, right? They stir up memories that take them to the past. Bring up issues pertaining to identity, space reminds people as to who they are or maybe who they want to be so and on and on, we can give many more examples here. Our job as 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 ethnographers is to better understand and explain our informants' phenomenological experience of and responses to the spaces they engage with in social life. I think it is a helpful conceptual methodological strategy for investigating space and its temporal dimensions ethnographically. A more concrete example. Um, and it's sort of from, from, it is from my book, uh, how are we to get a better understanding or how am I to get, as an ethnographer, a better understanding of what the Vilnius Cathedral as a national, quote-unquote, phenomenon, this is where phenomenology comes in, right? Uh, National phenomenon. We're thinking about the um, cathedral space as a phenomenon Uh, with its own space times, with its own chronotopes, of which there's so many, right? So how are we to understand that cathedral as a national phenomenon with its own chronotope? Well, how about we try to investigate ways in which the cathedral is experienced by people? Phenomenologically, how about we use a religious wedding ceremony at the cathedral as an ethnographic setting in which to describe and analyze that experience? that phenomenological experience. And that's what I uh, attempted to do um, in, in my book. Uh, the, the cathedral um, and the experience of it uh, takes up quite a bit of, uh, of space in, in the book. And uh, um, yeah, and I think, and I hope that shows how time and space and experience um, of, of them how uh, they come together to yield some pretty valuable um, information um, about the people who are part of that experience. Um, so it, it's a it's a handy, helpful way of um, looking at the world and trying to understand it better. Uh, yeah, when we're conscious of the c- categories of time space. Uh, what people do, how they experience things, when we put it all together, I think we can uh, um, learn some some interesting, valuable things yeah
1: to me, it seems that this um that combined the phenomenological framework and the time space concept kind of like help us understand better how our specific um Informants, how would I say? Like, so the people that we're interested exploring, um, how they connect to the past and to the future, and how they formulate their identities. I would say, would you agree here? Or
0: very much so. Very much so. It's 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 about connecting the well, uh, past, present, and, and the future, and it's co- connecting oneself one's selfhood to those temporalities. Um, and these connections happen when people are actually uh, in the space, when they experience the space. And the space, of course, talks back to them, right? The space makes these things happen, right? It, it enables those connections to the, the past and the future and the present. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a moment where a lot of important things happen. So our job, once again, as ethnographers to mm, be mindful of these moments, to be very observant of these, of these moments, to kind of get out of them as much as we possibly uh, can uh, ethnographically. Because that's where a lot of, um, because these moments can yield a great deal of sort of uh, ethnographic, ethnographic knowledge that we're, we're after. So.
1: yes uh, I, I agree with you here and i feel that the anthropology as a discipline kind of like has the prerequisites for such analysis like with this um main principle of participant observation it kind of like puts the basis for such kind of like explorations um so i mean like even methodologically um anthropology kind of has it I don't know um whether i whether it is clear what I mean, but it kind of like really fits nice with the main anthropological principles um, and methods
0: right well we 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 do field work we right we we get we get to people very very close, so we do get very close to the experiences so um and uh once again our um our responsibility is to to uh, understand those um, experiences better and uh, and to explain them to ourselves and, and other people and uh, one productive method, method methodology just to uh, to study those experience experiences is, is um, what we just um, discussed briefly sort of um, chronotopic and 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 phenomenological uh, view um i think it, it works quite well um so yeah
1: this is my impression as well um so another thing that i was interested in was this um connection that you kind of like you're able to do the connection between the present and the future the present and the past and in chapter two, you talk about the wedding as one of the instances where references to future are articulated and objectified in the present hours. But on the other side, in everyday talk, the possibility of normal future is negated, so people are not really very hopeful sometimes when they talk. And um, how do you think the rite of passage achieves to get p- to people? feel more hopeful about their future?
0: The future is, is indeed central to the wedding's st- uh, time-space or chronotope. Um, this rite of passage is so significant culturally because it reproduces the institution of marriage, forges new social relations, and holds enormous promise of familial and national continuity. As rituals promising biological and social renewal, um, weddings make the future foreseeable or, at the very least, imaginable. We could say that weddings are preeminently futuristic and hopeful celebrations. Um, As such, they are well-equipped to project visions of things to come. Um such projections are made, for instance, through, just giving you an example now, uh, through the bride and groom's visits to different city spaces on their wedding day, uh, spaces that could be seen as signifiers of a desirable future. Now, a more concrete example of that could be something I witnessed in the field. Uh, could be the bride and groom stopping by at a McDonald's restaurant for Big Macs between their civil and church ceremonies. Like, what is that all about? Um, So, yeah. (laughs) Um, So this could be seen not only as a way of embracing the consumer modernity that McDonald's represents, obviously, uh, but also claiming that modernity um, at a deeper level as uh, desirable for the future. So this is just an an example of how how the wedding engages with the future, how it activates the future, uh, how it incorporates the future in its its narrative. Just sort of one pretty simple uh, example here but I think it's it you know illustrates the, the point quite well um, there are many other um, reference to to the future in uh, at the wedding uh, for instance wedding gifts are about expectations and hopes for the future some gendered gifts such as kitchen appliances or a set of uh, carpenters tools tell the bride and groom what kind of wife and husband they're expected to become. Um, gifts are also used to signal to the newlyweds that children should be part of their, uh, that children should be part of their marriage. Um, one wedding, uh, I remember the bride and groom received a baby booster chair with a doll sitting in it. So the message there is uh, pretty clear. Uh, wedding videos are also uh, well, exactly. Uh, yeah, Yes. Uh, um, wedding videos are also full of imagery with messages about a prosperous and fulfilling future. Um, and as yet another example, we could mention wedding toasts as an important discursive or linguistic means uh, to articulate expectations and desires for the future. Um, Weddings also bring in the past through uh, foodstuffs associated with what is seen to represent traditions such as diktine or vodka or the so-called branchy cake are examples of the past's presence at the wedding. Uh, The traditional male and female matchmakers could also be mentioned here as participants representing national pastness. Um, Whichever way they are signified, the past and the future, um, I would argue, are the privileged temporalities of the wedding. Its connections with the present, however, as I see it, are more uneasy and tenuous. Uh, One could argue that the wedding has a kind of hierarchy of temporalities, with the future obviously being at the top as the most important temporality of the wedding, the past in the middle, and the present at the very bottom. In other words, the wedding is not, yeah, the wedding is not super interested in the present. The wedding is all about distancing from it and kind of focusing primarily on the future and the past um, so uh weddings, as we know they they are you know liminal events they're the rites of passage they are about taking people out of the daily ruts and routines and 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 away from the mundane and the familiar in other words they're about taking people away from the present from the familiar quotidian present and uh yeah that's their sort of job so so to say and we still need to be engaged with time, right? Uh, that's part of, you know, what you know, rituals do. They they connect with, with us with time, with, with temporal parameters. And I would say, once again, the wedding is very good at connecting uh, wedding participants to the future and the past. And actually, a good wedding um, or a wedding is recognized or characterized as good. Real, beautiful, precisely when it, it, it succeeds in connecting uh, the participants to the uh, future and to the past. Anyway, these are the, the temporalities of, of the wedding and uh, and their hierarchies as I see them.
1: So they say abnormal, but what do they mean by it? Maybe those people are struggling, let's say economically to provide their livelihoods, like what is something that they would regard as quite abnormal um let's say, in the time of your fieldwork, if this is not the way people phrase it anymore
0: um what what is normal in daily life in 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 the present is that what we're interested in yeah well
1: yeah so because because like let let me clarify because I feel I haven't phrased it maybe the best way but from what i heard maybe it's a little bit like doing it black and white what you just said but um in normal in order for a wedding to be regarded as as beautiful as real as um a really really good wedding and people to be kind of like happy with it it kind of like should reference to past and to the future in a successful way. This is like do I understand you correctly so so I was wondering, so if this is the definition of a normal or proper wedding, when we go back to the everyday and to the present how do how do these definitions of normalcy change what is what is normal? within the everyday life, and why is there something that fails that make people to be less hopeful in their everyday life?
0: Yeah, well, uh, there's there, there are many failures in, in day-to-day life, and, and so much of that day-to-day life is oftentimes uh, described or perceived as very, very abnormal. <laughs> so people talk about normalcy a great deal as something uh, very desirable and as something that is very difficult to um, combine. Um, and uh, doing my field work not so much lately. Not not, not so much the past uh, uh, five, eight years. But during my field work in the late 1980s, the word normalcy was was one of the um was was central to uh, sort of many um many conversations, uh, uh, all kinds of discourses. So in other words, people were talking about normalcy um a great deal. Um Now, normalcy was an important point of existential reference, as I see it. Um, My respondents often assessed their lives in terms of normalcy, articulated desires for what they saw to be normal, and bemoaned the perceived absence of normalcy in many domains of their lives. Um, uh, Just about everyone seemed to be striving for a normal existence. Uh, As one of my respondents uh, simply put it, I just want to live normally now. Um, Now, what would that actually entail? Let's just break this uh, 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 statement down a little bit. Um, Normalcy was conceptualized in social moral terms. When talking about social relations within the family or in the neighborhood or at the workplace, uh, the more tangible material aspects of daily life were also evaluated in terms of uh, normalcy, um, uh, just like being able to afford basic uh, consumer goods, the availability of basic consumer goods, Uh, was seen as sort of normal. That's how it should be. Uh, Having friendly, respectful relationships with your family members or your neighbors was uh, seen as normal. Um, uh, So visions of normalcy, not unlike those of modernity, held the promise of a quote-unquote better life. Having more normalcy uh, were seen as um, or, or desires for normalcy um, sort of bespoke desires of of a better um, more satisfying uh, social existence um, now there was a perception which is still very true today that People in the quote-unquote modern West led normal lives, and well, now that we're heading to the capitalist West from the socialist East and are becoming more modern, we should expect normalcy to take hold here as well. Um, so, modern and normal were often used as overlapping categories, and just uh, just like. Much desired modernity, normalcy proved to be difficult to attain, um, and uh, as I see it, uh, normalcy is a concept with with which to make sense of a profound and unsettling changes brought about by the so called modernization, um, and it's also a concept that. Um, provided and still provides people with a vantage point from which to critique uh, those changes and to distance themselves from them. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's normalcy. One of the, 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 the the many keywords (laughs) that I heard in, in the talk of my respondents uh, during my field work and, I, it's not as prominent these days anymore. Um could be that people just disillusioned in normalcy and kind of gave up on it. Um but uh they uh, still want still want a better life because uh um modernity, the pursuit of modernity has not delivered that life yet. Um so uh yeah, life still remains very abnormal for many people. It's just that, I, uh, as I said, it's uh, the, the word itself uh, does not come up as, as often these days um, as, as it did uh, um, earlier in my research.
1: So what's the abnormal? Um, those people are like struggling, let's say, economically to provide their livelihoods? Or like, where is, what is something that would be really regarded as quite abnormal? let's say, at the time of your fieldwork, if this is not the way that people phrase it anymore?
0: Um, well, <laughs> just about everything would be regarded as abnormal. Uh, it was just sort of a master trope that uh, enjoyed enormous popularity, as I, as I mentioned. Uh, so <laughs> in different domains of, of, of uh, daily social life, Uh People say that the rainy weather was abnormal, that the rudeness, you know, uh, of the of the drivers on the street is abnormal. Or would people say with indignation, is this normal? When is when is our life going to be normal? Um, uh, Prohibitively expensive consumer goods um, could be commented on by someone as, you know, look. Is this normal? I cannot afford any of this. Um, getting a meagre pension um, that can, you know, barely cover your 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 utilities on a monthly basis um, was referred to. It could have been sort of identified as, you know, an instance of abnormality. Uh, so it was just a word, a trope with which to talk about the world as well as a trope with which to critique that abnormal world. And as I argue, also a way to kind of distance from that, ab- world, from that world perceived to be abnormal. And it's also a way to, once again, articulate that desire for something better. And that something better was promised by Western modernity, which is sort of kind of on its way and arriving, but it's still not quite here. So life remains abnormal. And so what do we do? There's not much we can change about this life. So we turn to language. We turn to specific words with which to at least symbolically critique and challenge that abnormality that uh, people perceive to, uh, to be around them. Um, so there's still a great deal of Uh, discontent and disillusionment a great deal of kind of negative commentary on uh, what's going on socially, economically politically in Lithuania today. It's just that I don't hear the word normal used that that often Um, but the discourse really hasn't changed Um, it's, it's still ongoing And if anything, I think it might have even intensified uh, because people are getting increasingly frustrated. Uh, You know, it's almost 30 years now since socialism collapsed and our lives are still so abnormal. Uh, It's not what we expected. We wanted something very different. Uh, And we're sort of traveling in the wrong direction here. Um, So there's a great deal of that kind of talk um uh which could still be seen as sort of you know the talk of, of normalcy. Um it's just that the the word itself um I don't don't hear don't hear that that often. Um so anyway, yeah an interesting an interesting concept that could take us on a very long kind of uh uh discussion and um, critique is in all kinds of interesting directions of course uh it's it's interesting how just simple word can open up uh, doors to uh to much broader deeper uh, conversations so anyway
1: so finally i really appreciated that in your book i could read more about the challenges you have encountered while in the field and i was wondering whether you can Tell us more about, about that, what was most challenging, and maybe a piece of advice for beginning anthropologists who are researching rituals.
0: Um, yeah, Yeah. well, there's, there's a great deal of what I would call ritualized activity in Lithuania today. Um, I cannot say whether there's more of it than there was... 30 years ago, it's hard to measure that intensity, Um, but it's certainly there. It's certainly very noticeable. Um, Now, some of that ritualized activity is uh, secular and state sponsored, some of it is religious, associated with the Catholic Church. And some of it is just um, grassroots um, stemming from civil society. Now, to give you a a few um, quick examples, uh, there are four days in the Lithuanian calendar that celebrate the state and its sovereignty. Uh, uh, These days are state holidays with a lot of ritual and celebration. Um, Just this past summer... Until July the 12th, I was watching the presidential inauguration in Vilnius, which struck me as quite ritualized and elaborate. It included the swearing of the presidential oath, several speeches, long promenades through the old town of Vilnius, and the day was wrapped up with a reception of the presidential palace to which 2,000 guests were invited uh, the video of the inauguration, which is seven and a half hours long, is available on YouTube in case someone's interested in seeing it. Um, so, just one example of how the state and its institutions are ritualized. Um, there are Catholic I'm quality.
1: sorry. Yes. For, sorry for interrupting, but this uh, just wanted to clarify or to ask rather. Right. Um, yeah um would like normal people like me and you engage with these rituals i mean like uh, the presidential the presidential s- is swearing right like he's yeah um so would people um like just like watch watch it on tv participate in some way go would they participate would they, they, would, with they it?
0: Would, would, yeah. would they be part of it yeah. Oh, very much so. Oh, oh very much so. Yeah. Oh, to- oh, absolutely. Uh, th- July the twelfth. You know. You know. The the, the on that day, uh, the nation pretty much came to a standstill. Um, many many people were glued to their TV screens. Those who could um, participated in the celebrations uh, uh, themselves. So, uh, uh, oh yes, it's it's something that many me, ma- many people participate in, in in one way um, or another um rituals or ritualized events are 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 appreciated they they draw draw sizable crowds usually um, uh um, so i could go on with many other examples with with ritualization here we're talking about how the state is is ritualized uh, the church, of course, the Catholic Church is is doing its own uh, it, 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 its own ritual uh, rituals and Easter and Assumption and All Souls Day and of course Christmas and all that uh, could be mentioned. Uh, a ritual is very much part of uh, familial celebrations, from from baptisms to name days uh, to weddings, of course, and and. And, and, and funerals um, uh, and we could also mention less structured and less formal, and more spontaneous um, ritual that one observes in countless festivals and streets street fairs in, in, in Vilnius, the capital as well as in, in other smaller cities of uh, Lithuania. So, so, yeah, there's a lot of um, ritual to watch. Um, now, what are, we to, what are we to make of it? Mm, well, as I see it, the intense ritual activity in Lithuania uh, bespeaks underlying insecurities and vulnerabilities of the people, um, reference to perceived fragility of things falling apart, are uh, quite common in daily talk and in the media. Uh, In this context, uh, ritual could be seen as an effort to appease those feelings of disquiet and impending doom. Um, And the prevalence of ritual, I think, also points to desires of belonging, of sociability, of togetherness, um, desires that um, intensifies at times over perceived threat or, or danger. And ritual is very much about stepping out of the present and activating the imaginers of the past and the future, something we've discussed already. Um, So we could also think about ritualization as a way of distancing oneself from, and again critiquing uh, that quote-unquote modernizing present that so many Lithuanians find disappointing and disenchanting. So that's one, one, one explanation, I guess, as to why ritual is so prevalent in Lithuania today.
1: Yes, I guess uh, um, I'm really happy with your explanation because um, this may, it is not very important to measure whether it is more or less than before, but rather what it means and to see that it is still prevalent and ritual is not dead um, in any case. Um, so... Yes. Um, so finally, uh, one of the things I really appreciated in your book was um, your kind of plainly honest and detailed conversation about the struggles you had in the field. Um, so the challenges, maybe not struggles, but rather the challenges that you encountered in the field. Um, so to my opinion, it is as important to look at the process of gathering the material and um, the difficulties in the field work as to the to the material itself. Um, I mean, like, the process shows itself many things uh, about the place. Um, so could you maybe really briefly share with our listeners what did you find most challenging when you were in the field gathering the material for this book?
0: Okay. Um, <laughs> well... <laughs> There were many challenges, but I guess the the biggest challenge in the field was accessing weddings. Uh, when I was uh, preparing for field work, I it, it didn't occur to me that this would be an issue. Um, I'm pretty embarrassed to that. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly under underappreciated the fact that weddings are, of course, they are closed. Uh, private familial celebrations that are not particularly welcoming to outsiders. Now in Vilnius, um, on Fridays and Saturdays, one could observe weddings in public spaces such as uh, the Palace of Matrimony, so-called palace, uh, as well as in in city city churches or on the streets of the old town. Uh, But getting inside a wedding as a a researcher was, was extremely difficult. And during the first six months of the field work, um, I, I just I just couldn't uh, couldn't attend any any weddings because no one really wanted to have me there. So I, I was I, I was I was during that uh, period of six six months I was busy conducting interviews, watching the media, uh, working in the archives. Um, but I still. Couldn't get into one single wedding, and I, I was getting quite quite concerned about my project uh, because I was almost halfway through my fieldwork and still no weddings. Uh, now, my identity as a complete stranger and a and a male anthropologist from Canada uh, interested in marriage celebrations uh, came across as quite unusual and odd to some of my respondents. Um, no bride or groom expressed any enthusiasm about having an anthropologist follow them around on their wedding day. Um, and, uh, and the thought of going to a wedding with a notepad and audio recorder made me feel increasingly uneasy and awkward. So I had to, I had to do something about this predicament if I wanted my project to succeed. And uh, following the very smart advice of one of my neighbors, um, I became a videographer, (laughs) an identity that made perfect sense in the wedding scheme of things. The the video camera repositioned me in relation to the wedding, provided me with a role that any participant could understand and relate to, as opposed to the anthropologist with a notepad. Um, it also, uh, mm, yeah, it sort of, the camera worked as a kind of master key uh, magically <laughs> that opened the, the doors for me, uh, and, and in some cases uh, to some of the most private and even intimate time spaces of, of uh, the wedding. Um, and was also a very handy uh, uh, data gathering tool. Um, after the wedding, I would give a copy of the of the video I produced to the bride and groom, and uh, with their consent, would keep a copy of the video for myself as kind of audiovisual field notes. Um, uh, needless to say, uh, my research project owes a great deal uh, to the video camera. Uh, so thank you, camera. <laughs> uh, with with uh, yeah. So that that was a very very big, a very big challenge, which uh, fortunately I managed to um, overcome. And, were you uh, familiar
1: with? Uh, sorry, yeah. Um, while we are on the topic on camera, were you familiar with how to use it so that people would be happy with the sound? Or
0: absolutely not. I knew nothing about video cameras. I had to learn how to use it in an hour, pretty much. <laughs> and uh it was yeah, it was a very steep learning curve. And uh I was not the best uh, you know, cameraman, that's for sure, I'll admit to that. Uh but uh um but yeah, you know, I i, I produced uh um half a dozen, if you not know, more, videos and I still have them here in, in my uh with my my data collection. Uh and uh so yeah. It's it sort of it, it worked. Most importantly, the camera legitima- it legitimized, legitimated by my, my presence. All of a sudden, this is holding a camera uh, uh, gave me a, a legitimate identity in the context of the wedding. People knew who I was and what I was doing as opposed to just being this anthropologist. Well, what is an anthropologist? And what does this person do? And why? And so all these questions puzzled a lot of people. And that certainly didn't help me establish a rapport with the the people. Uh, If anything, um, that identity of, of an anthropologist created a great deal of kind of chilly distance. And some of the people I approached, um, they told me kind of right away that just absolutely no, we don't want an anthropologist to uh, to follow us around on our wedding day. And I totally understand that. And it's a very, very personal uh, event. Uh, so you, you don't want a stranger with a notepad of all things. Uh, hanging around so but the camera work worked uh wondrous and and uh my research uh took off uh very quickly Uh,
1: um (laughs) any other challenging things that you would like to share maybe before we
0: uh yeah well rituals are are, 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 a very demanding sort of Mm -hmm. um uh, events, social events, to, to study, uh, because they are uh, they're a bit, very busy. They're multisensory. Um, they're multi-sighted and multi temporal, as uh, so in that they take place in many different locations and unfold over an extended period of time. Certainly, weddings do. Um, they um, they have many participants. Uh and because most rituals, certainly not all, weddings certainly are, um performances, right? Which means that there are audiences that watch the performance, right? So as a researcher then, with a camera or not, you not you're not only watching the ritual, but you're also watching the audience watching it or you're supposed to be doing that so there's there's a lot of you know watching that you you have to do if you want to do it well Um, uh, so yeah it's a good idea to have a pretty good plan as to how you're gonna position yourself well first of all how you're gonna enter the uh the the wedding and how you're going to position yourself in it and as I just said the camera is is very very helpful it helps you to enter and to position yourself but then again uh, there's only so much one can capture with uh, with a camera and uh, and and yeah um, and I'm still the best you know at the end of the of the day uh, the ethnographer's body. Is the best research tool, and uh, the best way to learn how to use it is by doing ethnography. And doing the ethnography of ritual uh, certainly gives the researcher a pretty good uh, workout. Yeah, so it's challenging, but it's 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 great fun, and it's it's very very rewarding. Um, so that's that's true of ethnography, I think, in general, and and especially of, of ritual
1: so yeah thank you for this and like advice for anthropologists researching rituals of which of whom i am um so uh, i really can confirm that it is really a workout as you said uh, like um, a mind workout i would say um to be yeah well
0: well no physically it's it's a workout for, for for the mind. It's also or for the senses, and it's also a workout for the body. I mean,
1: <laughs> right, right. I mean, like to kind of like focus your attention in in so many directions. It's almost impossible. And one does not know like, she, should, should should he or she writing be writing notes or, or taking pictures or maybe what is better like pictures or videos or notes or one needs to do all of this at the same time basically and this is not 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 right, possible. Right. And then well, all interacting with people there. <laughs> so you can see the command how they respond to the event. So it is basically really challenging if you want it to be in depth. Um, like it's not enough to just be watching videos or something.
0: Right. And and
1: watching videos online for example.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. And as a, as a videographer yeah, well that's yeah, that's another that's another experience <laughs> um altogether. But but uh, as a videographer, just another quick uh point here. Um um many people, uh many wedding participants would sort of tell me what to what to photograph, where to run, what to see, and 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 that was very helpful on the one hand on the other hand well i had sort of my agendas you know i wanted to see you know other things and and um so our my plans my intentions and the intentions or or, or the interests of the participants did not always uh coincide very nicely so so that just added more kind of disorient and you know, disorientation and 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 kind of uh hype to to the entire the entire experience so um but at the end of the day you inevitably uh, pick up a gradial of of very interesting uh and valuable knowledge and and information for sure
1: yeah i really can relate to this that people tell you See this important moment. You need to capture this or that, and yeah, I really, I really can relate to this and how it is helpful and problematic at the same time. I guess this is kind of like um, encompasses the relationship of an anthropologist with um, their informants. It is they are both the informants are both helping you and impeding the process at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, but it is it is really. a great experience and something that's really nice to be doing. Um, So I was wondering, because we took up a lot of your time, um, could you maybe um, tell us really, really briefly what you're currently working on? And with that, we can close our interview.
0: Um, Well, I've uh, moved away from weddings, although there's so much more that needs to be done. (laughs) Um, No ethnographic project is ever complete. Um, uh, you know, it's always a moving target, um, and, um, we always miss out on something as which is discussed, really running around with a camera will show you a lot of uh, different dimensions. So it will help you capture different dimensions of the wedding, but at the same time, you'll be missing out on all kinds of things. Now, some of the things that I, uh, overlooked in my study uh of of the weddings uh for instance uh music and music making um which adds very interesting very important uh sort of dynamic to to the wedding that has not been explored and i don't think it will ever be um or uh another thing uh, could be mentioned toasts uh at weddings are very interesting. Um, certainly very interesting toasts are very interesting at at lithuanian weddings anyway i i have not 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 uh did not include them in into my book so uh there there's some holes there and i don't think as i said i'm going to be going back to the wedding to uh to do more more research i've moved on to um another topic uh, a, a topic that still is very much uh, connected to uh, uh, to nuptials to marriage celebrations. Um, um, and uh, that topic is uh, social memory. Um, and it's it's not it's not a new topic uh, because as I said I, I explored it a little bit in 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 uh, in my study of of weddings and I also uh has to, have done some research on social memory um and uh, have some publications uh with the results of that uh, research. Um so just to you know uh sum it up very quickly, uh I'm specifically interested in the Soviet socialist past and uh which is still out war again. Uh, very present in the consciousness of many Lithuanians almost 30 years after the demise of socialism. And uh, in my current project, I want to document the ways in which this past is recalled and, uh, of course, to better understand why that past continues to matter so much. In a society where a dominant discourse is centered around the idea of European, modern western future. So that's that's where I'm heading. <laughs> certainly away. Uh
1: who no. knows. So you're you're doing an Yeah. Yeah, go. Yeah. Uh you're doing an uh, an ethnography again um and uh or...
0: Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what I'm I'm doing, but I certainly want to uh do a lot of uh interviews. I'm thinking about a project that would focus for the most part on the uh Statues of uh, the kinds of Marxist-Leninists that were toppled back in the 1990s, uh, when you think that uh, you know, people would have would forget about something like that 30 years after the fact, and that's not the case. There's a uh, pretty vigorous debate going on as to uh, what to do with these uh, statues, and and there's still. You know, a few remaining well at least one remaining, and uh this debate uh whether to leave it or whether to remove it, so there's still a lot of uh, uh there's a lot of uh uh deliberation as to how to engage with that socialist path so that intrigues me and it, it has always intrigued me it um but I think now that I'm done with my Wedding project, I could sort of uh, become more more focused on 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 memory and specifically through through the statues. But I, I certainly want to bring in um, all kinds of <clears throat> voices and make them part of 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 my work. Um, so I haven't thought through the my the the, uh, the, the plan the. Uh, the, the the project is not sort of finalized yet but this is the direction that I'm moving in right now so who knows it, it may take me back to weddings in some unexpected way <laughs> <Yeah.
1: coughs> well there is no use because like uh, not no use but I, this is not needed it, because the project that you're describing itself is very interesting and it happens to interest me as well, even though I haven't done like any projects, but um, I have uh, um, I have read and thought about these things coming from from Bulgaria. That, like I'm coming from Bulgaria, so it, it, I can see that it is an important topic for the whole Eastern European um, art. Yeah.
0: Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. This is not not uh, kind of a Lithuanian phenomenon. It's it's uh, the the so-called memory movements are uh, everywhere in in Eastern Europe and and pretty much around the world. So um, and of course, there are many other pasts that are remembered. I'm interested in just the Soviet past, the most recent uh, past uh but there's sort of the interval past, there's the the uh the czarist past, there's uh the medieval past, so uh uh the many different pasts that one could be focusing on, but all of them tell us that uh uh the memorial consciousness is, is very much alive and well uh in Lithuania and elsewhere.
1: Thank you for this conversation, Dr. Langowskis. I would be interested to discuss with you your next project as well, of course, in another episode, Um, and I wish you success with it, and I hope that working on it will be very inspiring for you.
0: Well, thank you so very much, and uh, thank you for for having me. It uh, was fun.